All right, well, this morning we are continuing on the attributes of God, and this morning we will be looking at the holiness of God. Kind of a big topic, and probably can do five or six weeks on the holiness of God, but we're going to try to get most of it today. Um, when we talk about the holiness of God, we need to understand that a lot of people just have a very limited view on holiness. What's most people's view of holiness? When you ask them, what is holiness, what will they tell you? Being good, moral, purity, being free of immoral, immoral stains, right? It's, it's talking about moral imperfection. And it is true, holiness does include some level of moral purity. That is a part of what it means to be holy. This idea that holiness is limited to just moral purity goes quite a ways back. A lot of people have had this view. A guy from the 5th sixth century named Pseudo-Dionysius said that holiness was freedom from all defilement, a purity that is total and utterly untainted. So that is an idea of what it means to be holy, and that is certainly true. There are some aspects of holiness that center around being free of moral stain. And some have said this is such a big part of holiness that they define it that way, that they have refused to put this as a separate attribute of God. And they have said that the holiness of God is just a part of his goodness, and so there's no point in separating it and making it a unique attribute of God. Uh, Thomas Aquinas did this. And he said holiness is just an aspect of his goodness. There's no point to separate it out. But holiness is not limited to just morality or purity. And I think we can see that, and we'll see the problem with defining it that way, if we just look at what the Bible describes as being holy. And you guys tell me what the problem is here when we get... There's three specific people or groups that God, uh, the Bible describes as being holy. The first is God himself. God is described as being holy. The second is people. That can be an individual or a group of people, like a nation. Israel was called a holy nation. And the third is objects, inanimate objects. So let me ask you, if we define holiness to be holy as merely the absence of sin, moral purity, what problem does that create for this list? doesn't really work on objects, does it? It doesn't work on people either. If holiness is merely the absence of sin, then people cannot be holy. And if holiness is the absence of sin, and that's all we say it is, then we can't say there are holy objects. A table cannot be holy because a table cannot be sinful. It's amoral. So we can't define holiness as merely the absence of sin or moral perfection. So when the Bible refers to something as being holy, what does it mean? When the Bible says, this is holy, to understand this, I just want to look at some terms. And it's going to be one slide of other language, okay? But I think these terms help us understand what it means to be holy, and it's going to kind of lay a foundation. When you go into the Old Testament, there's a group of words that refer to the idea of holy or holiness, and the root of those words is this Hebrew word, kod. 
uh, I put the transliteration beneath it, cod. Cod simply means to cut or to separate. Now, not everyone agrees this is the root, but this is what most people assume is the root of the rest of these words. It means to separate, to remove. It pictures something as being cut off and isolated. From cod, we get another word, kadash. Kadash is a verb. Hebrew verbs can describe action or they can describe a state of being. Here's the difference. When this word describes an action, it describes the action of separating. Um, I have props this morning. I have a pile here of pens and pencils and highlighters. If Kadash is describing an action of separating, it's describing me grabbing one of the pencils and removing it from the group. That's describing the action. When it's used to describe a state of being, it's describing the pencil after it's been separated. Kadash would describe its present condition. It is separated from the group. That's its state of being. Does that make sense? Everybody follow me? This term is used to describe, is translated as holy. The final word in the Old Testament is kodesh. Kodesh is a noun. It refers to objects or persons that have been separated or that are separated. It can refer to a person, an object. It can refer to God. The point here is that this person or object is separate in some way. By the way, I have not given you the full definition here. We're, we're going to build that out as we go. In the New Testament, there's one main word that you need to know that describes holy. It's the Greek word hagios. And it also includes some aspect of being separated. But again, if we just define holiness as merely to be separated, it doesn't really help us. Because if we define holiness as merely being separated, then all of these people would be considered holy according to the Bible. Do you guys agree that these would be considered holy according to the Bible? On the left are Buddhist monks. On the right and on the bottom are cloistered monks and nuns. I don't think that the Bible would refer to any of these as being holy in a biblical sense. There, if you define it only as separation, absolutely. But these would not be holy according to the, what the Bible says about what is holy. To be holy means more than just merely to be separated. If, if it was merely to separate, then all we have to do is go lock ourselves in the closet and now we're holy. We're separated. That's not the idea of what it means to be holy. It's included. Separation is included, but that's not the idea. Holiness describes a relationship. It describes a relationship. It describes a relationship to the world and a relationship to God. These are not two separate relationships. This, these are two sides of the same coin. The object is separated from other tasks and from other objects like it. You might say it's separated from all that is common. I separate this pencil 
from all other pencils that are like it. But I don't separate it just merely for the purpose of it being separate. I separate it for a purpose. So that it could be devoted to the service of the one true God. And now this pencil is used only to serve God and for no other purpose. It is not used for me to write a letter. It's not used for me to take notes. It's used only to serve God in some way. If I was copying manuscripts, maybe I would say this pencil would be the only pencil I use to copy biblical manuscripts. I don't know why you would want to do that with a pencil these days, but... And your goal in doing so would be that you could be pleasing to him, that you could be pleasing to God in your use of that object that has been set aside for that task. Herman Bavink described holiness this way. The word holy is used, first of all, with reference to an array of persons and things that have been set apart from general use and placed in a special relation to God and his service. The object is removed from the world. Its service to every other thing in the world ends. It stops being used for all those common tasks. It stops being treated as something that is common. And it has a new relationship. It is now devoted exclusively to the service of God. And it does nothing other than that. It is for God's service. The first time we see this in Scripture is in Exodus 3. You remember the story Moses goes up on the mountain? Exodus 3, verse 5. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. There's our, our noun there, Kodesh. It's holy ground. Now, it's not saying there's something special about that ground. The ground Moses was standing on was rocks, dirt, plants, and bugs. The same as any other patch of dirt in the world. The same as the dirt that you walk on. There's nothing unique or special about that dirt. It was just dirt. What made that dirt special was not the dirt itself. What was different about this ground was that it had been separated by Yahweh. It had been chosen by Yahweh and separated from the rest of all other patches of dirt. This dirt was given a specific job by God. And its job was to be used for the manifestation of his presence to Moses. And it was set apart from all other patches of dirt. Every little grain of dirt in, on that piece of ground was selected by God for that purpose. And there was no other ground in the world that he had selected other than that one. And God says, Moses, take your sandals off. I was thinking about that. Why would he tell him to take his sandals off? You know, Eastern mysticism, that you take off your sandals because you don't want to bring the evil spirits in. But why would God tell Moses to take his sandals off when he's just walking on dirt? Some would say, well, because there's something special about the dirt now. I don't think that's what it is. I think it's something simple. God selected that dirt. Those grains of dirt for the manifestation of his presence. 
not the dirt that was on the bottom of Moses' sandals. Not the dirt from over there. Don't bring the common dirt over there to here. I didn't select that dirt. I chose this dirt, and I'm going to manifest my presence here. Do not defile it. Do not try to mix the common with the holy. It is holy because God has chosen that ground, separated it, and reserved it for his special purpose. Exodus 29, 31. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in the holy place. The holy place was a section of the tabernacle. There was the holy place and there was the holy of holies. And the holy place was a location set apart by God for his service. And he says there is certain work that is to be done in that place. And that is the only work that you do in that place. is the work that I have chosen for you to do. And you are not to do that work somewhere else. You're not to take the ram to your personal tent and boil it there. You are to do it in the place that God has chosen. The place that God has set apart for his service. And you are to do it nowhere else. Places, pieces of ground can be called holy. Days of the week can be holy. Where am I going with that one? What, what day of the week is called holy? Sabbath. Exodus 16, 23. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. Is there anything very special about Saturday? Does something happen differently on Saturday? No, the sun comes up, the sun goes down. The wind still blows, the tide still comes in, the tide still goes out. It's a day like any other day. What made the Sabbath special was that the Sabbath was set apart by God for his service. He made it holy. He made it separate from all other days so that people could serve him on that day. Leviticus 23. For six days, work may be done. But on the seventh day, there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. The Sabbath day was a day set aside that all your other tasks, all your other work, all the common work that you have in this world was supposed to stop. The Sabbath is not meant for those tasks. Those tasks can be completed Sunday through Friday. On the Sabbath, you are only to do those things that God has appointed, that God has allowed you to do or given you to do. You devote yourself entirely to the Lord. The Sabbath is set apart. Take your week, separate out that one day. Do all your work in the first six days. And on that one day, he's saying this to Israel, you devote yourself entirely to serving me. This was the day that God set apart for service. And it was not to be used for any other purpose. And if you use this, if they were to use the Sabbath for any other purpose than what God had said, it would be defiling the Sabbath. And the consequences were severe. Exodus 35, verse 2. Work may not be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord. 
Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Profane what is holy, and God says, I'm going to kill you for it. This is the day God set apart for something particular and special to be serving, to be pleasing to him. And it was not to be used for any other purpose. Or it would be viewed as defiling, profaning. So scripture refers to physical uh, days, patches of dirt. It also refers to physical objects as being holy. Objects that have been separated for the purpose of service to God. Things like water. Yes, the Bible does speak about holy water. Okay, no, 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 no. Not that kind of holy water. That's not what it's talking about. This is not what the Bible is talking about when it speaks of holy water. This is mysticism. It assumes that because some priest gave some incantation over the water, that there is now some special spiritual property to the water. And that that water now has the ability to somehow empower you, cleanse you, or do something for you. And that power is inherently possessed in the water. That's not biblical. That's not what the Bible says about holy water. Now, I'm going to deviate for just a little moment here because our good friend Charles Spurgeon wants to go on a little bit of a rant against holy water. Is anyone upset? Okay. So we're going to let him rant for a minute. And he would say this a lot better than I can read it, so I apologize. Holy water indeed, a vile mixture of Uh, neither fit for man nor beast. You see this liquid virtue at the doors of all their churches, ready for the brows of the faithful. If you have not been in a Catholic church, you walk in, there's these little pots, and you dip your finger in the pot, and then you're supposed to make the sign of the cross. And he says, you see that. And then he says, see how the rain pours down from the distant black cloud? That sort of holy water is infinitely more likely to moisten the clay of the defunct and bring plenteous blessing to the living than all the hogsheads of aqueous fluid that priest ever mumbled over. Holy water indeed. Rain is far more suited for the purposes of serving God and pleasing God than some little dish of water that some priest mumbled an incantation over. If there be such a thing, it trickles from the eye of penitence, bedews the cheek of gratitude, and falls upon the page of Holy Scripture when the word is with power. Tears that are poured out for the purpose and in the service of God are far more holy water than anything you'll find in the Catholic Church. It's more suited to pleasing God. And it is found to be more pleasing to God. Last little thing from Spurgeon here, and we'll, we'll finish this rant. One feels indignant at the idea that the little driblets of nastiness in those pots and shells should be venerated, and nature's reservoirs accounted common or unclean. It needs no small measure of prudence to restrain a man from tumbling pots and pans and holy liquids headlong to the ground. Human folly, how far wilt thou not go when priests lead thee by the nose? Too bad Spurgeon didn't say what he was actually thinking. Yeah, he was sugarcoated, tickling ears. 
Scripture's description of holy water is not what the Catholic Church portrays. It's not what many of you have seen. And I don't mean to be piling on the Catholic Church here, but so many of our misconceptions about holiness stem from the teachings of the Catholic Church. And so many people have a wrong view of what holiness is because of that teaching. As Spurgeon said, holy water is water that has been separated from all other uses for the service of serving God, for the purpose of serving God. This is found in Numbers 5. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel, and he shall take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. You're not to go over to the pond and sprinkle water in there. You're not to go to the river. Not that there was a river in the wilderness, but you're not to go to a river. You're not to go to your mom's tent where she's got her jar there of drinking water and use that. No, no, no. There is water that has been set aside for this purpose. Its purpose is to serve God and has been set aside for that reason. You're not to go find the dirt in your tent and put it in that water. That would be taking something that is common and profaning the holy. Don't do that. You are to take the water that has been set aside for this purpose. You are to go to the tabernacle, get the dirt from there, and put that dirt in the water. This was the means by which they would find out if someone was unfaithful in marriage. In what sense is this water holy? It's holy because it's been set aside for the specific purpose of serving God. Even a home could be made holy. Leviticus 27, out of a man consecrates, that's our verb, kadash, his house as holy to the Lord, then the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. Consecrate, kadash, describes the act of separating. A person wanted to donate their house or to give their house to God and use it for the purpose of serving God. They would go to the priest and say, I would like to consecrate my home for the service of God. The priest would go to the house, he would evaluate the house and determine the value of the house. Whatever value the priest assigned to it was the value of the home. And he would pay the person that amount and nothing else. That home is now Kodesh, is now holy. Not that there's something special about the house. That is to say, that home is set aside exclusively for the service of Yahweh. And it is to be used for no other purpose. But this evaluation by the priest also has another purpose. There were some vows when you dedicated something to the Lord that you could actually go and get the item back. You could redeem it but it was going to cost you. Remember the valuation? The priest said, this is what your home is worth, and you, you were paid that amount. To redeem it back, you take the same evaluation, the same price, and you add 20%. And that's what you pay to get it back. It's out of Leviticus 27, 16. You're going to lose money on the deal. Why would God make it to where you lose money on it? Because the whole point is, once it's been consecrated, once it's been made holy and set aside for the service of God, it's not supposed to be taken back. You've given it to God. It's His. You don't undo it. 
And there were some vows that were considered to be unbreakable. Once you made the vow, you can't do anything about it. Leviticus 27, 28. Nevertheless, anything which a man sets apart to the Lord out of all that he has, of man or animal, or of the fields of his own property, shall not be sold or redeemed. Anything devoted to destruction is most holy to the Lord. Once you consecrate it, once you give it over to God, it's over. And devoted to destruction here is not saying when you do that, the priest is going to burn down your house. He's going to destroy it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it might as well be burned down to you because it's no longer yours anymore. It now belongs to God. You have no control over it. You have no say in what happens to it. It's not yours anymore. And God determines how that object or that thing will be used. And it is to be used only for his service. Herman Bavinck explains this. He says, in all these instances, the term holy does not yet refer to an internal moral quality but only indicates that the person or objects so described have been consecrated to the Lord, have been placed in a special relation to his service, and are therefore set apart for the common domain. In all the things we've looked at so far, none of them describe, the, the idea of holy does not describe an internal moral quality about those objects. Holy so far has only described those objects being set apart for the service of God. And the consecration, the making of something holy, is not done by the individual. That is to say, if I were to just get up one day, let's assume I wasn't a believer, and I were just to say, I'm going to consecrate myself to God. I'm going to make myself holy. Well, as Christians, we understand that's not going to happen. But I can't do that. Something is made holy only when God makes it holy. There's nothing inherently in the person or in the object that qualifies it for being made holy. Herman Bavinkian, the objects do not derive this special relation to God from themselves. If God were to consecrate this table, it's not because there's something inherently good about the table. If God calls you to salvation and makes you a holy one according to the New Testament, it's not because there was something good about you personally. It's because God chose that. To be holy means that you have been separated from the world. That you have been set aside for service to God. And that you now have a special relationship with God. Anybody hearing some Reformed theology coming here? Here's the problem. Separated from the world, enabled for service to God with a special relationship with God. Why can't you do that on your own? Sin. Yeah. We're all sinners. We're all under judgment. Man is by nature a sinner and therefore... He cannot be holy independently. He cannot choose to separate himself and set himself aside for the service of God. We cannot choose to have this unique relationship with God. 
It's something that only God can do. It is God who sanctifies, who makes holy objects and holy people. Exodus 31, 13, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Same word. It's that verb, kadash. I am the one who makes you holy. God is the one who sanctifies. God is the one who makes people holy because God himself is holy. An unholy person cannot make something else holy. Leviticus 21, you shall consecrate him, therefore, for he offers the food of your God, he shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctifies you, am holy. God has the ability to make someone holy, to sanctify them, to set them apart for service to him, because he himself is holy. There are two means, you might say, in which God sanctifies people or objects. And we're just going to call these positive and negative. Okay, I know that's not real fancy, but it works. Positive and negative ways that God sanctifies. And this is just another way of explaining what we've already said. Negative. He chooses and he separates from all others. Just like the pencil. I chose one and I separated it from all the others. Positive. He causes them to live in accordance with with specific rules. When I separated the pencil, and I said there are certain things this pencil is no longer allowed to do. It's no longer allowed to write letters or do math problems. It can only be used for the service of God. This pencil, now that it is holy, has special, specific rules that must be followed when being used. Let me give some examples. God set apart the Sabbath from all the other days of the week. That's the negative. But now that the Sabbath is holy, now that the Sabbath has been set apart, there are certain rules that must be followed. You can no longer treat the Sabbath the same way. And so God started that process, and God rested on, and he blessed the Sabbath. He started to treat that day differently. And from then on, Israel was to treat the Sabbath differently. They were to to behave differently on the Sabbath. Another example. God chose Israel, and he set them apart from all the other peoples, all the other nations of the world. And he takes them into the wilderness, and then what does he do? What does he do with them in the wilderness? He gives them the law. And he says, now that I have chosen you, now that I have set you apart from the other nations, here is how you are supposed to live. Here are the rules that you are to follow to live as a holy nation to me, to live in my service, to serve me. Final example. God chose you, and he set you apart from the world. He didn't take you out of the world, but he set you apart from the world. He said you are to be light in darkness. You are the salt of the earth. You are different. You are separate. You are not to be like the world. And then he gave you rules you have to follow. He gave you a law to obey. So that you could live a life that is pleasing to him. So he could tell you how you are to serve him as a holy person, as a person who has been called, chosen, set apart for the service of Yahweh. 
this is what you need to do to serve them. I would say that's part of it. Yeah. I would say that's part of it. Her question was, would you attribute the Holy Spirit as being part of the positive, the second part here? Um, the Holy Spirit enables you to obey and to live that life. So uh, we'll, we'll actually pick up on that in a little bit because we're going to talk about the new character of the object. So, yes, the short answer. Okay, good question. These rules, when something is made holy, whether it's an object or a person, they change the way that thing is interacted with or that person interacts with other things. When Mount Sinai was set apart for God, Exodus 19, Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. Mount Sinai had been set apart from all other mountains. This was the mountain that God was going to use to manifest his presence to Israel. And it was to be used only for that purpose, and it was to be used only in the way that God described it to be used. He had set rules for that mountain. And you were not to treat the mountain in any other way. That is, you're not even to touch the mountain unless you are Moses, or Aaron. Specific rules on how that mountain is supposed to be interacted with. Exodus 29. Thus they shall eat those things by which atonement was made at their ordination, speaking of the priests, and consecration. But a layman shall not eat them because they are holy. There's two sides here. First, the priest has specific obligations that he is to fulfill. When he has been set apart, when he has been called into the service of God, there are specific requirements that he must obey and follow as someone who has been made holy by God. The sacrifices have been set apart. They're rams, goats, bulls. They have been set apart from all the other animals, and they are to be treated in a specific way, and the sacrifices to be done in a specific way. There are rules for how you treat holy things. And they have been made holy. Oil was also consecrated to God. It was made holy. And it had specific instructions on what you were supposed to do with that kind of oil. Exodus 30, 31. You're not to pour it on the body. You shall not make any other oil with the same proportions. And why should you not treat it this way? Why should you not do this? Because this oil is holy. It has been separated, chosen by God, and set apart from all other kinds of oil. And it is to be used for only one purpose, the purpose that God has given for it. When something is made holy, there are rules attached. Okay. God sanctifies objects and people. He chooses them. He sets them apart. He gives them instructions on how to live. Why all the rituals? Why all the ceremonies? Doesn't that mean that we can create some incantations and make something holy ourselves? Herman Bavink, this is a little long, I'm sorry. Sanctification is something more than merely being set apart. 
It is by means of washing, anointing, sacrifice, and the sprinkling with blood to divest a thing of the character it has in common with all other things and to impress upon it another stamp, a stamp uniquely its own, which it must bear and display everywhere. The rituals and the ceremonies of the Old Testament didn't actually change anything about those items. But those rituals and ceremonies did change Israel's perception of those items. When the high priest goes in and he sprinkles blood on the Ark of the Covenant, there may be other boxes of wood with gold-plated tops, but there's no other boxes of wood with gold-plated tops that have that blood sprinkled on them in that manner. They set them apart in the eyes and in the minds of Israel, and they were figures of what would come later. Uh, Leviticus 8.15, next, Moses slaughtered it and took the blood with his finger and put some of it around the horns of the altar and purified the altar. Then he poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. Ceremony was just a visual image for Israel. It changed nothing about the altar, but it did set that altar apart from every other altar in the minds of Israel. Moses did the same thing. He made an offering for the purification, not only for the altar, but he also made one for Aaron and his sons so that they could serve as high priest, setting them apart from every other person in the nation. The high priest offered a sacrifice for his own sins, Leviticus 16.11, not because the sacrifice purified him in the sense of truly taking away sin, but it sets him apart. Job, in Job chapter 1, verse 5, says that Job continually made offerings for his children, in case they were they had sinned, to set them apart, to consecrate them to God. I hope you're beginning to see the idea of being holy, especially in the Old Testament, is not merely being morally pure. Moral purity is certainly part of it, but to be holy in the Old Testament means a lot more. To be holy means that which has been chosen and set apart by God. And whatever God has chosen and set apart, he has given it a new character. It's no longer common like the old thing, like it used to be. It is now special. It is now set apart. It is no longer common. It is no longer profane. It has received a new character of its own, and now it lives according to that new condition. In accordance with the laws that God has prescribed for it. Do you see your Christian life yet? Herman Baving said, Holy is that which in all things conforms to the special laws God has ordained for it. Holiness is living up to God's law. When you have been set apart, and given his law to live by. It's to live up to that law totally and completely. Herman Baving says holiness is perfection. Not only in a moral sense, but in the comprehensive sense in which the unique legislation of Israel conceives it. A religious, ethical, ceremonial, internal, and external sense. To be holy means to be completely and perfectly set apart for the service of God. 
to be totally and fully obedient to his commands, to fulfill every obligation that God has placed on you as a believer. Holiness refers to perfection. But if we really want to understand what it means to be holy, looking at us helps us think about it, but it doesn't actually give us the right picture. We actually have to look at God. Holy refers to that which is separate, separated from everything else, and devoted to God's service. Those are the two ideas I want you to have in your mind. Separate and devoted to service. Both of these describe the holiness of God. Both of these can be applied to God's holiness. God is separate and distinct from his creation. We call this majestic holiness. And God is totally devoted to his own glory in nature. We call this his moral or his ethical holiness. We'll start with the majestic. Majestic holiness. Uh, Biblical doctrine says this speaks to the fact that God is inherently great and resists all compromises of his character and therefore is transcendently distinct from all his creatures in infinite majesty. God is totally separated from his creation in the sense that he transcends his creation. We're not talking about physical distance here. God is distinct. He is separate from creation. Uh, Exodus 6, um, 15, verse 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? The answer to this question is no one. No one is like him. There is nothing in the world that compares to him. There is no other God that comes even close. Look at all the false gods of the world. I'm sorry, I've read about Allah of Islam. I don't see anything in there to worship. He doesn't even come close to the God of Scripture. When we view God rightly, it leaves us feeling small and feeble. Louis Burkhoff said it awakens in man a sense of absolute nothingness, a creature consciousness or a creature feeling leading to absolute self-abasement. Seeing God for who he truly is makes you feel like you're microscopic. That's his majestic holiness. Completely transcendent, completely beyond anything that you can think of. R.C. Sproul spoke of God's majestic holiness, and he said it signifies everything that God, everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him an object of awe adoration, and dread. It's not just that God is relatively better. If we talk about someone's skill sets, Forrest is relatively better at using Logos than me. That's not to say that Forrest is perfect at using Logos, but he is better at it than I am. That's relative. That's not what we're talking about with God. When we say that God is higher or greater than us, what we're really saying is that God is in a category all by himself. And that there is no one else who comes anywhere close to God. And when people see God, it creates fear. When they actually get to know who God is, 
They realize what they are, and they see themselves rightly. Isaiah 6, Isaiah is in the throne room of God, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He is in the presence of a perfect God. And in the presence of a perfect God, he is filled with dread, because he is not perfect. Remember when Peter realized who Jesus was for the first time? Remember what Peter said? He fell down at his feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I'm in the presence of a perfect God. I can't stay here. I'm going to die here. That's the majestic holiness of God. Even angels, perfect sinless creatures, immortal creatures, have to cover their face in front of the God who is described as holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6 again, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two they covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. You know what, it's not an accident that those angels have six wings. Four of them were used to cover him. They were designed and built by God to cover him so that angel could stay in the presence of God. Joel Beakey commented on this passage. He says, The angels cover themselves in God's holy presence, not because they have sinned, but because even sinless and mortal spirits are overwhelmed by God's holiness and unapproachable light. When we speak of holiness in the creature, we're describing a person that's set apart for service to God, that conforms to his perfect standard, or the standard that God has established for him. God's majestic holiness means that God fully and perfectly conforms to his own standard. We don't perfectly conform to his standard. That's why you have to repent every day. But God fully and perfectly conforms to his own standards. It is his attribute of utter perfection, his perfection in all of his attributes, that separates him from his creatures. He is perfect, absolutely, completely perfect. And in his perfection, he stands apart by himself. There is no other being in the universe. There's no other creature in the universe that is absolutely perfect, as God is perfect. I'll let John Frame sum it up. Holiness is his majesty. For the holy God is like a great king whom we dare not treat like other persons. Indeed, God's holiness impels us to worship in his presence. God is perfectly holy. And you wouldn't want to treat God like you treat any other being or any other creature in the world. And when you see God for who he truly is, when you see him in his majestic holiness, the only response is worship. All right. Ethical holiness. This is the one that everybody knows. Majestic holiness refers to his separation his ethical holiness refers to God's perfect uh, fulfillment of his own law, of his own moral standards, that he is free from all sin. Wayne Grudem said that God is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. God's ethical holiness was demonstrated in the Old Testament. 
It was demonstrated in the precise demands that God gave to Israel to follow. It was demonstrated in the dietary restrictions, the prohibition on things that God deemed unclean. Those were figures of sin. And his exactness was to indicate his moral holiness, his moral perfection. God is holy, and therefore he is completely set apart from sin. There is no evil in God. 1 John 1, 5, in him is light, and in him there is no darkness. None at all. Darkness here would be moral impurity, would be sin. And notice the contrast here. He didn't say, God is light, and in him there are no shadows. There are shadows in this room. Shadows have light in them. Darkness here is complete darkness, the complete absence of light. Light is the complete absence of darkness, the complete absence of sin. Psalm, Psalm 5, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells within you. There is no sin in God. God hates sin. When we talk about God's wrath, we'll talk about his absolute hatred of sin. He says, I do not find pleasure in it. I don't like it. I don't want to be around it. If you are holy, if God has set you apart for his service, and if you are a holy one, as the New Testament describes, you have that new character of a hatred of sin. Not perfect, but it should be there. But wait a minute, Doesn't, don't people say that God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner? Psalm 5, very next verse, Psalm 5, verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Psalm 5, verse 6. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. God hates all sin. And he is at enmity with everyone who lives in sin. God does not fellowship with those who love sin. Psalm 26, verse 5, I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I will have nothing to do with those who engage in sin, who love it. God is holy, and those he has chosen to serve him must also be holy. And the standard for his holiness or for holiness for us, is not what we think. Our standard is Him. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. If God has separated you from the world, if God has called you into a special relationship to serve Him, then He will separate you from sin. He will discipline His own. He will discipline those that He has called into His service. Hebrews 12, for they disciplined us for a short time, speaking of parents, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. For what purpose? So that we may share in his holiness. So that we can be like him. Christ's redeeming work on the cross was for the purpose that the church would be holy. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. 
so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. If you're not being disciplined, if you're not being sanctified, if you're not growing in your holiness and in your hatred of sin, you have a really big problem. And you have reason to fear. Just a few verses later in Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12 verse 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, the holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. 1 John 3, 2 says, those who have the hope of seeing Christ, they purify themselves. They pursue holiness. They pursue freedom from sin. To, me, to be holy means to be separated from the world, to be separated from sin. To be holy means that you have been called into a relationship to serve God. You have been called by God, you have been set apart by Him for His service. And you are to devote your life to doing what is pleasing to Him. God chose us, Ephesians 1.4. He selected a specific people so that we would be holy and blameless. He has given us a task. He has given us things to do in his service, rules that we are to live by. And he has given us a new relationship. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us to adoption as sons. And now the goal of life is what? To serve him. To serve him in everything. Romans 12, that we would offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Take this idea of holiness, that God has chosen you and selected you out from the world. He has separated you from the world so that you could live your life in service to him. So that every act of your life would be pleasing to him, be a service to him. And apply that to what you do throughout the week. And the activities that you engage in, are those activities truly a service to God? Are those activities truly pleasing to God? Are you living as a holy person? Separated in a new relationship with God. All right, it's 10 o'clock. If there's any other questions, feel free to see me afterwards, and I'll try to answer your questions if I can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, um, that you are a God that is transcendent, that you are the incomprehensible God that is far above us, and that you would condescend down to our level that we could understand just a part of who you are, that we could see just a glimpse of who you are. But not only that, you didn't just give us a glimpse, you gave us Christ, God himself in the flesh. And in Christ, we see a perfect example of what a holy man should be. What a life looks like that is completely separate from the world and devoted to your service. Father, you know our hearts. You know that is our desire that we would be holy. Not just because we know theology. We know that the righteousness of Christ is credited to us. But our lifestyle, that our practice, that our walk would match that position that we would truly be devoted to your service. And we ask this in his name.
Amen.